Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Hear Me Out podcast, where we talk about the possibilities of the future and what the problems are today that are holding us back from becoming a truly thriving global civilization. I want to welcome Drew back to the podcast because he is a listener favorite. Um, I'm sure he knows that by now. Uh, never mind the fact that he is my very first and only guest. He is a rock star in an, in an empty coliseum, and we are happy to have him here again. Oh man, I tell you what, if, if I ever have a if I ever write a memoir, I'm gonna I'm gonna name it a rock star in an empty coliseum. That's that's a really <laughs> good quote. But I absolutely love that. So I would just like to say thank you for having me. I enjoy these conversations and and uh, I'm just happy to be here and kind of participate in the Socratic method. And uh and uh, I really enjoy these conversations. So let's get off of the races and let's have a discussion, man. Let's do it, man. Let's do it. So the first question is, is it possible for us to be a utopian civilization or something like a utopian civilization? Um, let me explain a little bit what I mean by utopian civilization. So let's talk about like, for example, the elimination of crime, the elimination of poverty, um, you know, no aberrant behavior where people don't have mental illnesses because of the way that our society is structured. I mean, pure happiness, you know, the heads in a cloud type of civilization that we dream of, but you know, it seems unattainable. What would it take to have that, that kind of civilization? I think that um, it starts with a fundamental shift on how we perceive utopia. You know, to utopia in the classic sort of way that you're describing it, I think it is impossible given the nature of humans. And I don't mean that in any sort of negative or derogatory way. Uh, Dostoevsky said something about the human experience is that the human experience is not about the elimination of pain but the shifting of its focus. And what he meant was, is that if you gave people everything they ever wanted, i.e. if you gave a starving nation the ability to feed itself, then its misery would shift to something else. Uh, you know, as these, these liberal ideals that you and I aspire to, which are lofty aspirations and one worth shifting towards, are these ideas that, you know, there's this brass ring utopia off in the distance and uh, I think sometimes we're so focused on this absolution of all those awful things you mentioned that we forget that there's that these are these aren't tectonic these aren't tectonic shifts that occur to get us there. These are small incremental changes that kind of push the societal rock down the road a little further. And I think that in the short term, if we focus on, huh, this is such a cliche, but you know, I was always told if you take care of the little things, the big things take care of themselves. And and to Dostoevsky's point or Dostoevsky's point, you know, there's no such thing as the elimination of misery and pain, because even if we had everything we wanted, humans are inherently in love with misery. To some extent, even the happiest people, you know, that have everything that you would think they would want are just not always fulfilled because I always say, I used to think as a younger man that my loftiest aspiration was happiness. But, loft, but happiness is a fool's errand in that to be happy all the time is completely impossible. It is just inherently impossible to be happy all the time. So I shifted. I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I had, a, you know, you, you mentioned some really interesting points that, that I kind of want to challenge because I've always been a proponent of somebody somebody who thinks that not only is it possible but the fact that we aren't kind of at least starting to go towards that direction is is insanity i think that we're insane um 
maybe we can't have that pure happiness 24 seven, you know, seven days a week, 365. But I think that it's possible for us to make those small steps right now. And I don't understand why we haven't made them. So is it that we love misery so much that we're so we romanticize misery so much that we would prefer to live in misery and hope for the possibility of utopia? Or is it that something is keeping us back that we aren't really aware of yet as a civilization? Well, that's a really good question. I'll put it to you this way. I think that it is inherently human to put off doing the tough thing. I think that it is inherently human to be in the moment. We are inherently creatures of habit, like I talked about in the last podcast. Our ability to see and recognize pattern is not only the method with which we understand and replicate intelligence, but it's also the matter with which we endure and trial through life. And anytime that there's an interruption to that routine, there are two types of people in this world. Uh, I, I mean, and not to break everybody down to one or two, I mean this philosophically. I mean, most people love the idea of routine and it is a place of comfort. And some people like chaos. They like the constantly ever shifting face of the world and they want to be part of that challenge and thought. And I think that's what thinkers and philosophers and scientists gravitate towards. Not to say that those that like routine aren't fully capable of being intellectuals as well. But to your point, I think you see human suffering you look at it through the eye of a human. And I know we, I shared a speech with you the other night about, you know, Camus when he came to America and had that discussion after uh, 1946, after, uh, you know, France was liberated from the Nazis. And right. his, his philosophical perspective was, you know, we have to be part of the dialectic. We have to constantly be part of the conversation. And, he thought that the biggest hurdle going forward, at least in that speech, was that we've put in place of morality, of our own justifications and our own actions, these systems of government and religion, and they now become the facilitators of our moralistic integrity. It's not, okay. our, it's not our idea to feed the poor. It's the system's job to feed the poor. They take the taxes, and in taking the taxes, they take the moralistic burden off of me. So it's no longer my consideration to help my fellow man. It's some part of the system. Does that make sense? That actually reminds me of a quote that, you know, I quote Chuck Fresco a lot um, in my everyday life. And a quote that really stands out to me with this is that the only limitations on the future of humankind are those we impose upon ourselves. Absolutely. You know, like you're saying, what you're saying is that we are essentially putting these, these hindrances on ourselves. We are, we are giving them away to someone who's, who doesn't have our best interests in mind. They have a completely different goal, just like we talked about last week on the um, the technology companies who have a different goal for us. These people are, whether it be government or the systems themselves, they're not designed to make things better. They're not designed in our best interest. They're designed to con to maintain control. They're to designed to status quo. Sorry, go No, to, what are you going to say to to conform? To no, no, conform? they're meant to sustain. All systems are created to continue in perpetuity. That's their main function as a system is to live in, 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 in infinite infinity. And to your point, and the one we talked about last week, that, that, that those systems, <clears throat> their, their perpetual motion does not always coincide with what is best for humanity. Often, in fact, if one looks at history, it, it usually doesn't. And to come back to utopia, uh, I, I, 
it's really an individual sort of perspective because utopia to you might not be utopia to me. So now you get into the whole philosophical weeds of Ooh, what, how do you, how do you, def, how do you define happiness? And then okay. you get into the existential crisis of what you think of a happiness. How do you justify projecting that onto another group of people who might not think the same way? You What's know, that's a, that's a sticky wicket, man. That's a sticky wicket in that. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that, that is a, that's a good point because let's set a standard. Then the standard I think is, should be pretty universal. Um, I think the first thing is that we all need, we have basic human needs and those basic human needs should not be ones that we strive for. They should be ones that are provided. Given the civilization that we have today, we have what it takes to just provide the necessities, the basic necessities, food, water, shelter, electricity, warmth, things like that are, are we have what it takes right now, technologically, and as when it comes to manpower and resources, what it takes to do those things right now. The only thing that's stopping us are the systems that we use and trust in today. Okay. So it's not necessarily, I mean, let's, let's, not, <clears throat> let's not get too in the clouds and let's talk about, you know, let's, let's dispel the idea that pure happiness all the time is part of this utopia. Let's just say that, that at least the idea of survival is not something that we have to pay for. It's something that we, it's just part of the system itself. I think survival is an inalienable human right. And I think that we, it should be. And I think it still is. It's not one we recognize as much as we used to. You know, I think that what makes America the free nations of the world, quote unquote, free nations of the world, um, this idea that, that man has an inalienable right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, to say what's on one's mind, is the most existential of ideals. And I love that. You, you um, believe that the freedom, you said the freedom of expression, the First Amendment, for example. Well, uh, can I bring this back to one more philosophy perspective, and then I'll, I'll answer sure. your question. Yeah. Um, I, I brought up Camus earlier, but, and he, although he denied it in his lifetime, uh, he is what's been, been defined as an existentialist. And and existentialism is kind of a branch of nihilism. And nihilism is the philosophical ethos that nothing matters. And I would argue that they're right. But what makes the existentialists really great, what Camus thought was that we are, and I'm butchering the quote, but we are undeniably, painfully, amazingly free in that it's inherently human to take, to try to project reason onto an unreasonable world. The universe is, in my opinion, complete and utter chaos. There's no definition. There's no defining, especially from a perspective of moralistic integrity, happiness, these, these ethereal sort of thoughts and perspectives. What separates the nihilist from the existentialist is the nihilist says nothing matters, and that's a dark thing. That's a reason to be upset, to, to, to lament. The existentialist says nothing matters, but that's beautiful. Because if nothing matters, then you, the individual, get to define what does matter. And it's entirely always, up to you. I've always had a hard time grasping that concept. I think it's, it is very poetic. Um, and I actually, I actually really want to get more into that myself on a personal level. But I've never been able to fully grasp that because I, I feel like the connections that we have, the ones that we really, really hold dear to our heart, those do matter. And, and they, they matter so much that they can either make or break us. And... And maybe I'm misunderstanding what that actually means, but in my opinion, everything, everything matters. 
So help me understand. Am I am I wrong here? Am I misunderstanding or misinterpreting what that what that quote means? No, the beauty of it yeah. is that we're, I mean, under the existentialist discipline, we're both right. Do you know what I'm saying? Okay. Like that, that's, the, that's the oh, ideal duality. is that, yeah, no, not even the duality in that, that the world is full of chaos. And you're right. There are certain inalienable truths, connection, community, and these are things that Camus actually believed as well. So I think that goes against why he kind of claimed not to be an existentialist. And I'm only giving you the armchair version of existentialism, mind you. I'm far from an expert on these subject matters. but. I've always interpreted it as there's a beauty in that. There's a beauty in that chaos of the universe is that we get to decide what is important. You know, we need to, we as human beings need to rebel against the dying of the light, you know, our own mortality. And in that, he wrote this book called The Myth of Sisyphus. And uh, really, it's a book about why you should not commit suicide. But I'll get into the, that's a subject for an entirely different day. But essentially, it's an interesting one. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, Camus' thought on suicide was the only real philosophical question is, should we live or should we die? He thought that was the ultimate summation of the philosophical principles that everybody's trying to, to find out through history. Okay. And uh, in the myth of Sisyphus, he writes this quote about there was this Greek god named, excuse me, there was a Greek king named Sisyphus, and he was punished by the gods by having to push a rock up a hill for all eternity. And every day he would push that rock to the top of the hill and the rock would roll back down and he'd have to start all over again. And we look at that. Yeah. And we look at it as an analogy for the human condition that this arduous idea that we're all pushing this rock up the hill, but in the end, it won't really matter because we're all going to die. Everything we've ever known is going to return to dust. And, and again, that's, that's, a, that's a euphemism for my nihilism versus existentialism. A nihilist would say, then what's the sense in pushing the rock if none of it matters? Right. Where the existentialist would say, and this is a direct quote from Camus, one must think of Sisyphus as happy in that his, there's triumph in the pushing of that rock up the hill every day, even if it means it's going to roll back down the hill again. And we get to define that triumph. If that make, does that make sense? That, that actually makes perfect sense. And it reminds me of Eastern philosophy because a lot of the Eastern philosophy that talks about how we, we live in this life of suffering, that to, that to live is to suffer because life is full of suffering from birth to death. Everything we do is suffer. We get hungry, suffering. We get tired, suffering. Anything that we experience in life that is a discomfort of some kind is essentially suffering. And so like to live is to suffer. It's like, we, right. it is exactly what you're saying. It's like we're constantly pushing against an uphill rock, a rock uphill. Um, that's, re that's really good. I like that. But, I like that. Okay, I'll tie what you just said into this euphoria concept that we're talking about. The thing we're missing most societally and spiritually, and even dialectically, if that's a term, is the forgetting of that shared human experience and with it the misery the joys and the lows of that experience we have all become both societal especially in america and again i'm looking at it through my frame of experience because obviously that's all i know of course, of course. Uh, you know in america it's become very individualized we're all performing to an audience now through social media, to our friends. There's this projection of Instagram that we have to be these people that were witty, that were funny, that were good looking, that were the smartest person in the room. And all that comes at the cost 
or the pedestal above that which I would deem and you would deem infinitely more important that the inherent human connection, you know, that that's infinitely more important that instead of making a TikTok or right. showing off your wristwatch yeah. on Instagram, go right. next door and talk to your yeah. fucking neighbor, you know, have a conversation with a friend, even like we're having right now, you know, we, we, we today glamorize vanity. We put vanity ahead of altruism. Um, oh, as a matter of fact, doubt. I heard someone, I just heard someone say the other day, someone who's running for governor, I, th I believe governor in California, and I, I don't like to talk about politics, but he, he made a, he had a quote that said that, um, oh man, that today people, you know, can be too altruistic to a fault yeah. to the point where, you know, it's, it can be detrimental to society by wanting to be too altruistic. And obviously, you know, the, the nature of, of the, of the times today. Um, there's a lot of conflict because people want to be self-actualized in ways that other people don't don't understand. And so because of that, there's a conflict. And you, they call people social justice warriors who are out there, you know, uh, wearing the, I don't want to want to say it, but the, you know, the outfits that, you know, at some right. rallies that are explicit um, to kind of fight for like women's rights or something like that. And some people don't understand that. And so what they'd say, they fight against it by saying that's just too much because I don't understand. It's just too much. Um, and then vice versa. You have people saying people who want to have more of a national approach, who want to retain their culture. And to them, that's that's important to them. And then there's the other side who says they don't understand that. And there are so that causes so much conflict because what people are trying to do is they're trying to have the freedom of expression ultimately. I think that's the most inherent human desire. I fucking hate nationalism. And I'm sorry, that's that's not exactly I mean, a crass I, or kind whether, thing to say. Yeah, whether it's good, I don't I don't like to to put a value on it as hard to right, say whether right, it's right. good or bad. It's it's more along the lines of like being able to just understand why people feel that way. You know, I, I like to I I'm I I realized a while ago that there are people who hate you just because you're you. You right. haven't even done anything, they just hate you. And the question is why? And if you can if you can find out why, you might learn something and, and reach them in a way that they have never been reached before and change their entire perspective. And I know that's not the most um, pleasing way for you. It may be more stressful in life, but it does make life richer because those are challenges that you that can make you grow as a human being. And and again, it's in my opinion, it's it's much more fulfilling to ch to be challenged in that way than to just continue to misunderstand and just be angry with them. I mean, Drew, you know, I've, I've, I don't know if you, when you left, I had an experience where someone said something to me that was explicitly offensive. And all I could think of was why would they say that? Like, what, what is it about that person that they would say something like that? And it made me think and wonder why people think like that. And I realized oh. it's not because of me, it's because of their experience. Something oh. in their experience has taught them to think and feel this way. It's all learned behavior, man. It's all in behavior run through the filter of human experience. And when I said earlier about hating nationalism, I don't hate the idea of countries and history and a collective origin. I, I hate how it's used as an excuse for thinking. And, and, and I'll bring it. Yeah. Well, oh, okay. I keep bringing it back to existentialism, but uh, there was another existentialist called John Paul Sartre. These are both prominent French existentialists that came out of, of occupied uh, France. And he had a term called living in bad faith. And living in bad faith is when you take 
an idea that you don't necessarily agree with and believe it because it's the easier method than it is to have that conversation with yourself. To live in bad faith is to adopt a set of ideas or philosophies or religions or moralities that aren't necessarily yours, but it's easier than having to form your own or to challenge the way you think. And that's a big part of existentialism. And, you know, uh, you know what Camus would have called the absurd and that's the, the absurd nature of the world and of life and trying to make sense of things that don't always have a, that don't always make sense. Uh, my grandfather told me one time that the most dangerous thing a person can do is try to use logic to, to understand an illogical situation. The certain things are just illogical, and we try to project our framework of logic onto it, and then you get into these mud pies of the mind that we're discussing right now, you know, and, and you're right every day, but I think that it says something about you, Marquise, that when that person said that thing, your first response wasn't anger, your first response was almost a, a feeling bad for that person, a, an understanding of why do you think that way? I'm not furious at you for saying it as much as I'm just flabbergasted that somebody, given the context and the enlightenment of the current age, could feel and think something so wholly ignorant or awful or unmoral. And again, but a lot of these terms are relative, you know? Well, what, I mean, you know, I, I, I feel like that's suffering. Drew, Drew, the... the the reason why I think that is because I know that those people who feel that way, they're suffering from something. The only reason you can be angry, what, is, what did Yoda, uh, Yoda say to try to get this quote right? You can, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. And hate leads to suffering. And yep. so when you have people who hate you for just being you, they're suffering. And, that's, and they don't even realize it themselves. And they're, they're going to live a whole life full of suffering and not even know it. They think that they're, they're just fine. Don't examine life isn't worth living, my friend. Those people don't examine themselves. Moments of clarity cause them pain because yeah, nobody's just, ever shown much of a, a second. In my opinion, they're just as much of a, of a victim as anybody else. And, and not obviously the magnitude is different, but I, but I do see them as victims because they're victims of ignorance, and they're they're being they're being essentially encouraged to be more ignorant, and that's not necessarily entirely their fault now some people would say that you're responsible for everything that you are today especially as an adult because you can choose what to believe and what not to believe but when you grow up believing something psychologists will tell you that becomes who you are and so in Without essence you don't even get a yeah you don't get a choice you sometimes do not get a choice you just are who you are sometimes well um, especially then, depending on your cognitive development depending on whether or not you have the cognitive capacity to change those things on your own. Aptly put, my friend. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I mean, I, I do think that people like you and I still hold out hope for those individuals. You know, I have a lot, a lot of political, philosophical, and religious debates with people, some more intense than others. But, you know, more funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you see my social media. I, I like poking the bear, I, I like stoking. But, you know, I may say something that might be shocking to one political side or the other, to one religious side or the other, but, it, and you go into the comments, I never attack those people for thinking the way they think. I'm genuinely trying to stoke oh, you're good. Yeah. conversation. You a, like, you, yeah, you're trying to, the Socratic method, you're trying to elicit, the, you're trying to draw out of them. Something. I'm trying to say, hey, I am the first person to admit that I don't know the answer to this either. But it feels like to me, and, and most of my, political ideals and religious ideals come from a place of empathy 
at least I think in my mind, through my kind of self-discovery. I feel the way I feel mostly because I want to believe in the inherent, you know, the inherent faith that human beings, if given a choice, will be decent to one another. And I kind of filter everything through that because I've experienced a lot of pain in my life, at least from my perspective. And I'm sure there are billions of people out there who have experienced infinitely worse than I have. All I'm saying is that it's formed, right. it's, 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 it's formed my outlook on life. And I try to filter that outlook through empathy. You know, even no, the worst among us deserve empathy. And it's, I don't always succeed in that most lofty of ideals, but I make an effort to. You, you are human. I mean, we can only do what we can do. You know, it reminds me of another quote by Jacques Fresco. And I, I you know, call me redundant here. Oh, no but, worries. And this is probably, it's probably common among other, other philosophers too. It's, um, I believe it's like, um, either we lived, either we learn to live together in cooperation or we, that will cause our destruction or extinction. Well, okay, so I'll take, so if, if and, and, and in uh, honor of redundancy, I will pull out a section from that speech from Albert Camus last night. The, I the, love that speech. Loved it. Uh, Loved it. Thank you. It, you know, I think that uh, it's called, was called the human crisis for any reader that might want to, or any listener that may want to go hear it. He I'm gave it, put it in the show notes. It's amazing. It's amazing. Perfect. Perfect. Um, but the quote in question is at the very end of the speech and speaking, and, and, and I quote, Speaking in particular to young Americans in the audience this evening, I can say that the people I have spoken about have great respect for your humanity and your taste of freedom and happiness, which can be discerned among the faces of great Americans. Yes, they expect from you they would, what they expect from all men of goodwill, a loyal contribution to the spirit of dialogue that they want to infuse the world with. Our struggles, our hopes, our demands seen from afar may appear confused or futile to you. And it is true that on the road to wisdom and truth, if there is one, these men have not chosen the straightest or the simplest of paths. This is because neither the world nor history have offered them any straightforward or simple method. They are trying to forge their own hand, the secret they could find in their given condition. And perhaps they will fail, but I'm convinced if they fail, so will the world. That is. That's beautiful. I, he said so many things and that, I mean, it was packed full of quotes. You could literally excerpt every single portion of that talk and use it for quotes because he's, it's so full of truth. In my opinion, as he says, if there is such a thing, it's full of truth. Well, and he, he spends a lot of time at, at talking about how, you know, we're, we are going in the wrong direction as a civilization. And, and boy, it's like he, it's like he read the tea leaves, man. It's like he saw the future and it's more relevant today than it ever is. I mean, he talked about fascism and Hitler and the end of world war two and what the, the French had a really good idea of what awfulness was given what they experienced. And the quote that sticks in my mind from that entire speech is the beast may be dead, but the venom isn't. That and, is, yeah. It's like a set of past behaviors still existing today. And when you talk about this euphoria that you and I are discussing this evening, is it possible to have euphoria? No, but given the context that you're talking about, is it possible to enhance the standard and quality of living for all people? It absolutely is. 
And we have to come up with a framework for how we do that. And what we have to do is stop removing, this is not going to be a popular sentiment. And I don't, I only mean this intellectually. I don't mean this philosophically, or maybe I do. I don't know. I don't, I'm not entirely sure how I feel, but I think that <laughs> lo logically we have to come up with a way beyond the definition of wealth mm. that to define winners and losers solely through the acquisition of wealth is the sole proprietor of a lot of misery in the current world, that everything has to be run through that monetary ideal. And I'm not saying that capitalism doesn't have its pluses. It's given us everything that we enjoy. You could also wax intellectual that it's kind of become an opiate in that it gives us all the things that distract us from the human experience that numbs us to the world, technology and toys and guns and cars and drugs and all these things that keep us doped and keep us placid and keep us in place and keep us unaware of the collective suffering that's going on in the world. I don't, I, I mean, I challenge that a little bit because, you know, I'm, I am of the persuasion that all of the, the advances that we've made are from ingenuity. Some of the greatest minds in the world died broke and miserable because they didn't do it for the sake of money and capital. They did it because of passion. And so I think that when it comes to human achievement, human achievement is not, is not a chi, is not, is not solely the, the result of a capitalist driven civilization. It is, it is absolutely the direct result of our passion for things. Um, genius comes from passion. You can't, you can't pay your way to genius. You just, it just be, it's just what you desire, you know, okay. more than anything. My challenge to that would be, and not an argument of challenge, but a matter of perspective change in that. Challenge you're absolutely right. Those beautiful ideas that were born of the human desire for creativity. Can you name me one that wasn't perverted by the machine of capitalism? Okay, they were all exploited. <laughs> I have to but, but I mean, like, but I mean, like, and, and I'm right. You know, it's not that these things aren't beautiful. Like the polio vaccine was beautiful. Right. And it's one of those rare instances where it wasn't perverted. I mean, I'm sure that somebody much smarter than me could probably prove that it was. Well, but my point Nikola is Tesla. that the Nikola Tesla, right. you know, alternative current versus stolen. direct current. Uh, what Westinghouse did to him was criminal, you know, and yeah, but I think that, and I've said this a hundred times that I think individually human beings are amazing, but collectively, not always like I love people on an individual level, but you get a room of more than four or five of them together and it give them like something that. to inflame them. And yeah, they, they don't become individuals anymore, but they become this, homunculus glob of emotion and a logic that will that will plow over i mean they'll destroy nations they'll burn worlds all in the and can we bring this up and i believe this long before he said it or before i heard him say it i should say that you got to be really wary of the ends that justify the means crowd so much of history is run on that premise and it has just wrought and so much suffering that speech actually talked about that too. That's something I really liked about it. It's, you know, like, you know, achieving, achieving 
whatever the i guess what did, what did he say i've only seen it once so i can't really quote things as well as you can but he talked about the idea that the victor isn't the one who produces the most good for for the most people it's the one who wins right and so for like hitler one man can do something that causes so much suffering to so many people around the entire world one man should never have that much power but if you look throughout history he almost always have but the alternative to that and what they always tell you isn't true you know man somebody's always trying to tell you be it your church or your teacher or society that one person or a small group of them cannot change the world but if you look at everything that ever has changed the world that's almost always been the case both for good and for ill that is awesome martin luther king right is he, i believe so yeah i believe so you know, you know mother Teresa. and we, we not, let's not get into the controversies well you, okay let's talk know, we about, know they liked <laughs> we we talk about you you know this euphoristic society we're talking about well one of my favorite quotes from martin luther king is that this country has rugged individualism for the poor and socialism for the rich. And yes. this idea yes. that, you know, if you are bad off in this country, you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work a little harder. And, and frankly, the rich and the powerful in this country and in the world have a lot of what I would call, not, not what I would call, but they would call these rubes into being convinced that they'll someday one, you know, why would I want to put rules on the rich and powerful? Because I'm deluded into the idea that I will someday become one of them as well. So I yeah, will take nice. less and suffer more under the principles that if I were to be that rich and powerful, these are the things that I would want. And in reality, you know, the race for you was not the race for them. You started at the first yard line. These people that are telling you work harder, they started at the ninety. And their goal, their trip to the goal line is infinitely shorter than yours. You'll probably die before you reach their idea of the goal line, quote unquote. You know, but, I wish that people I wish that people would have read some of the founding documents by these men on capital and how capital works in our society as a structure. Um, because they they literally spell it out in a lot of those documents that it's not meant for the poor. That society is not meant for the poor. Society right. is meant to keep the poor maintaining the riches wealth right. and that's it's literally literally spelled out in there there's a lot of quotes that i i, I mean <clears throat> i have to i have to put them in the show notes or find them and kind of bring them up next time from those documents that are that are the foundation of like financial institutions today that say explicitly this system is designed to keep you poor so that we can stay rich we need you that way we as a country especially have to throw out our idealistic perspective on our history and grasp the idea of who we really were. Uh, I'm going to take a poke at a founding father, and I don't want to upset any of your listeners because this is just the facts. And I still think that these were great men that had great ideas, and they springboarded an idea that we still live on to this day. The one problem that we have with the founding ideas of country and democracy and freedom is that that those ideas are still founded in the 1700s that we think that they shouldn't evolve and grow as we societally grow and change you know everybody loves benjamin franklin because he wrote the words all men are created equal a term that he clearly didn't believe because he allowed his illegitimate children to live in slavery right he was a rich wine snob that didn't want to pay taxes to the brits anymore so he wrote some beautiful words and those words roused the rabble and those men went out and died for those words 
But the fact of the matter is, is that it's a beautiful idea. It's a beautiful thought, like all things contradictory to the man that said them. And that is the thing that we as a society have to get past is that we project these godlike ideas or these horrible ideals onto these people and think that they're defined by these one singulary moment, be them men or women. And we think that they're totally defined by this one awful thing that they did, or that they're totally defined by this one wonderful thing that we did. And we either raise them or lower them accordingly based on that perfect ideal or awful ideal we project onto them. But the fact of the matter is, is that people are infinitely more complicated than that. You know, all the time, you know, there are a lot of bad takes on Jerry Lee Lewis and R. Kelly and Elvis Presley for things that they've done. They were not great men across the board moralistically. But <laughs> you, if you were to take all the art, all the literature, all the music in the world and hold it to the standard of those that created it, we might as well chuck it all in the bin. Art is usually born out of some awful conflict. The people that created are conflicted people. They're, they're walking cliches. John Lennon was a walking cliche. You know, all this talk of love and freedom and hippie were all for one. He was a junkie that beat his wife. So, you know, obviously, sorry, again. That's, you know, that makes me think about something, um, something that, that I always examine about society. And that is that if we take a systems approach, something that the Venus Project and Jacques Fresco talk about, it's kind of the foundation of their ideology. The systems themselves are what causes aberrant behavior. It's not necessarily that humans are just, you know, prone to this behavior. I mean, any, any living creature is prone to any behavior within its capabilities if put in that environment, if put in an environment that nurtures that behavior. So right. an example would be you have people that are, they, they take social, um, social groups like you know, African-Americans, and they say that they're less likely to achieve the same amount of wealth, even if they make the same amount of income as their white counterparts. Well, why is that? Is it because they're inherently just genetically less um, intelligent, that they're less, they're just genetically less than he, white, the white counterparts? Or is it because a social structure that has been built for them in this country is, has made it that way? And that question is still not answered today. We're still, we're still trying to figure that out. Because there's, there's evidence to, to suggest both of those things may be true. But there's no definitive evidence to say that whether or not it's, it's one way or the other. I mean, <laughs> I would Full say disclosure, that, I do not think you, that African Americans are inferior intellectually for any reason. I'm just, I don't think you do either. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> you I, know, my, I, um, my point I'm is, just, just, <laughs> <laughs> my I mean, point I, is, that would be, that would be me. I, I would be inferior, uh, but I don't think that I am. So uh, clearly I don't believe that either, my friend, but it's uh it's an interesting topic of discussion because, you know, it, it brings up other points. So, you say about the system, a uh, system being right. created and perpetuated and how we function within those systems. And yes. it brings me back to what Camus said in kind of our earlier discussions that when a system is allowed to perpetuate, we start using it as justification for things good or ill. You know, the system provides us something that we want. So, i.e., the American government, at least in our mind, provides, you know, uh, paved roads and uh, albeit a piece of shit, but a healthcare system where we can still go get checked out. It, it, it quote unquote offers protection. You know, um, there's social security, there's all these social safety nets. 
But in that same regard, it kills a lot of innocent people when we invade countries, the acquisition of, uh, you know, certain that we would say are, are for freedom, but a lot of times be about the acquisition of certain, you know, fossil fuels and everything like that. The well, system, what the system has to do to justify its perpetuation, we will often forego and ignore to, and to, to accept the good parts that it offers us. I want you to think, I'm, I've, I've always had this like, Think about this for a second. The America, the USA, where we, this great country that we live in, which I'm glad to be a part of. Likewise. We are, we are known to be the greatest country in the world by ourselves. And we were, at one point, the leading country in the world when it comes to democratic ideas. Mm -hmm. um, but we are, we are also known, in conjunction with that, to be the biggest military power in the world still today. So it's not necessarily that our... In, that our ideas and ingenuity are the greatest it's, it's our power it's the fact yeah. that we can if you know we we project this this idea of freedom freedom of expression freedom of thought freedom of you know the, the american dream the white and yet defense. we it, have more people in jail per capita than any other country in the world we enslave people and not only that but we let people starve and we call them horrible human we talk about them as if they're just the scum of the earth we look at the homeless veterans and we say they're crackheads and cokeheads and drug addicts not asking why they're that way just looking at them as they are forgetting about what made them that way what system has literally led them to be that way but then we it, it's it's such a strange enigma i don't understand i still to this day do not understand how we can how anyone can look at any aberrant behavior and not ask the question of why not what because we know what they're doing what people are doing when they're doing bad things why are they doing it why do they do these things the idea and, that anything is less than us or beyond our love or comprehension or empathy is the greatest tragedy of the current human age in my opinion so well then in my opinion empathy is not necessarily the uh, the just feeling bad for someone or even un just like having the ability to feel what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes. I think that it is a cognitive process. I think it's your ability to visualize the, his the historical, you know, amalgamation of processes that made someone who they are today. You need to be able to, to imagine the steps that it took someone to get to where they are today. If you're not capable of that, then essentially you lack the cognition to be able to have empathy. Empathy is a cognitive process. I, I don't I think disagree. That, with, I'm sorry, Gab. No, I just I think that the, I think that that's one of our biggest problems is our inability is is generally, as a society, as a civilization, our inability to to have that cognitive capacity to have empathy for other human beings. I do think that empathy is an intellectual process. To your point, but. I think in order to make sure it attracts the greatest sum of people that you can't expect all the people that I think have the capacity to understand empathy to be able to intellectualize it as well. Some people just to your earlier point, don't have the cognitive capacity to process things a particular way, right, wrong, or indifferent. But I do think that even the worst among us on a, on their best day, can empathize with another human being because that's a collective experience. We might not be able to, you know, intellectualize every aspect of why a human is where they're at or what societal histories, excuse me, what part of societal history has made them end up there or what cognitive processes created this 
this boon of ignorance or this downturn in economy that led to them becoming a junkie or a depressive or whatever. But I do think we can look at another human being and know what it's like to experience their joy or know what it's like to experience their pain. And I think if we start at that jump off point first and build up to that process of trying to intellectualize it, you might get a little further towards that utopia that you're discussing. You know, we just have to understand that to live is to suffer. To live is to experience great joy. And the myriad of emotion that comes between those two points of existence is something that every single human being knows. Rich, poor, healthy, unhealthy, drunk, sober. And if we focus more on that collective joy and pain of existence, I think we get a lot more towards helping one another. It takes a, it takes a village, not just to raise a child, but to raise yeah. a society. You remind me of a Joker quote. You just reminded me of a Joker quote. <laughs> and, okay. And, the reason, and I want to, I'm going to say, let me preface by saying that the reason why we love some of the greatest villains of our cinema today is because they have a true understanding of human nature. The Joker quote that I'm thinking of is, all it takes is one bad day to reduce the sanest man alive to lunacy. That's how far the world is from where I am. Just one bad day. And the Joker is essentially saying that you don't, like... I have been through with so much terror, so much suffering, that this is why I am the way that I am. And you are no different than me, because if you felt what I felt, if you experienced what I experienced, you'd be in the same situation. That is the, one of the biggest and greatest villains that people literally love because of his understanding, his, his empathy. Not that he you know, exercised, he didn't express that in the right way, but he had an understanding of it. Just like you said, just because somebody has the intellectual capability to understand empathy doesn't mean they, they can conceptualize what to do about that empathy. Right. And so, so that joke, the, again, the, the greatest films, they have an understanding of our nature, of our true nature. And that and is reason. an understanding of suffering. Yeah. And the reason we empathize with those villains, the reason why they are the popular villains in, in history are because of our ability to understand and empathize with why they are the way they are. You know, a purely bad villain. You know, I don't think many of us can sympathize with Jeffrey Dahmer, for example. I'm no, not saying that no. he's not, he, that, 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 that there probably weren't things about him that you can empathize right. towards, but right. it's really hard for a human to project their experience onto that person's experience and go, I can see why he is the way he is. However, you know, at least in the cinematic and comic book context of the Joker, you can project human experience onto that and go, man, if what had happened to me had happened to him, I would feel the same way. Now, would that result in the same actions? No, but I can understand why he feels the way he feels. And that's, I think that quote that I just said, why that person feels the way they feel. How many of us in the modern context ask ourselves that question nowadays? We're so too busy brings... onto our cheeseburger and our cheap gas and our, you know <laughs> right. what I mean? Like it's just, oh, it it's, ain't oh, I got no more brother. <laughs> yeah, no shit, buddy. <laughs> that's the truth. You know, a whole that different brings cup me of to kind of, it's a, that is a whole nother cup of tea. That brings me to kind of the second part of that, of that, of the initial question of about the possibility of utopia. And that is, you know, this, we've essentially kind of talked about why it's not possible. And from our conversation, it sounds like the reason why it's not possible is because we don't have a true understanding of, of, of our own suffering and each other's suffering. We lack the empathy and the, the true understanding of, I guess, the enlightenment that it takes to make these changes 
on a societal level towards that utopia. We're, right. we're, gonna, it's, we're going to constantly be in this perpetual cycle of suffering and not just like I'm hungry and I'm thirsty and we need more tin or more you know, aluminum or more of this, but like people are starving, dying, there's war, murder. There's the, they, that's the kind of, we're, we're experiencing unnecessary suffering simply because we just don't have the ability to empathize and truly understand that that empathy that we that for other human beings that's what's stopping especially, us from this the, the utopia especially from like an american perspective we are so far removed from the suffering that we hear and see so much that it's really hard for us to understand what it's truly like to see other people suffer if we watch a bomb fly down a chimney in iraq and blow up somebody's home you know that's an image that's an image on a video screen that's not we don't understand we can't comprehend that actually happening to us and by not being able to comprehend it to your point we lose the intellectual process to empathize with that situation when somebody shows a picture of an african child who's literally starved to skin and bones on the tv yes oh do we do anything you know, yeah, no, not, usually, not, not typically just, oh, well, that's sad. Okay. On to my job and my things and my, you know, it's just, we're so far removed from the greater suffering of the world that okay, it's on. hard let's, for us to empathize with it. Okay. Let's, let's take a second here. So another thing that I, that I wanted to talk about is, and this is, it, it kind of goes along with the idea of systems, because I believe that the reason that, that we need to take a systems approach to everything. Um, I take a systems approach to a lot of things that I do in my life, how I see things in the world. There's a system approach to it. I think that our value system, and obviously it, the, the nation that we live in today, the value system is very centralized. It's very um, self-centered. But globally, the value system that we have, we don't really share a common value system. No. I think that if we had some basic common values, the value of human life, the value of, you know, I mean, you name it, that anything that is a deviation from what should be just normal survival is essentially the, a value that we lack. We lack values, the proper value system to create systems that, that truly change civilization for the better. I think Camus said it best in 1946, you start with a global ban on capital punishment. Really, we, we start with the idea that nobody, be them government or preacher or friend, get to decide whether another human being lives or dies. Now, if somebody's done something so atrocious, they need to be locked away and you need to protect society from that person. I can understand right. that. Right. But I have always be been. Like yeah, I, I, there, there's always going to be prisons, you know. However, in America, you don't need to be locked up for weed. You know, if you rape your no, neighbor or murder absolutely. somebody, then should you be locked away from society? Absolutely. Oh, but, absolutely. But if you don't pay your taxes or <laughs> you that's drive insane, too insane. fast in a 35 mile an hour well, speed lane or whatever, you shouldn't be locked up for such inconsequential actions. Well, again, we, we're, we, have, we have this system that is perpetuating itself. And as, as a byproduct, it just, it just, kind of enhances suffering, enhances all human suffering on all levels. Um, we're doing it wrong. We're just doing well, it wrong. If we're going to take a systems approach, 
Okay, let's come up. Okay, so I, I propose this. If this is the case, then we need to come up with a set of fundamental ideas that that we need to agree upon that we think a society should aspire for in its entirety. One, those ideas have to be created. Two, we have to find a way to get all societies to agree to the principles proposed. So one, you know, do we agree? And again, these are just, this is all just postulation. These are not hard and fact. These are just, of course, of course, you know, do we, this podcast, (laughs) do we agree that, you know, everybody should have food and shelter? Do we agree that every person should have the right to healthcare? Do we agree that it's wrong for person, society, or system to murder a person? You know, you have to come up with a set of ideals that aren't always profitable, but humanistic. And, okay, so once those ideas are created, how do you create a system approach to bring a world under those set of ideals? Is it even possible? Because I would argue, I've always said that the best way to change the world and fix the world is to make it profitable, <laughs> because it's really the only way to seem to exacerbate that sort of ideal, because if it's not profitable, yeah. <laughs> you can't drag anybody else into doing it. So no, how do no. you make solving world hunger? How do you make stopping capital punishment? How do you make food and shelter for all people profitable? Because if you do that, at least under the current system, then there's a very high probability of it actually getting done. If it's not profitable, it's still possible under the idea that anything is possible, but it's probably a whole lot harder to get done given the current state of the world. That just reminds me, and again, I, I love quotes. I, I, I think it's, it's big. It's really important to kind of some of the most intelligent people consolidate these big ideas into small sentences. Um, I don't know how to say his name. I think it's like Bertrude Russell, Bert, Bertrand. Bertrand Russell, Bertrand I think. Russell. Okay. Um, if we are to live together and not die together, we must learn a kind of charity and a kind of tolerance, which is absolutely vital to the continuation of human life on this planet. And in my opinion, again, that is it. The idea of, of, of altruism, of, of the community before oneself, the idea of, of sacrifice for the sake of civilization for the greater good for example that is not a value that we hold as as in any civil i don't think i don't know any culture that holds that value but in order for us to survive as a human race as all of us ultimately we have to we have to we need to adopt those kind of values altruism but if you look but if you look at society historically we only support those ideals when we're backed into a corner and we have to defend this yeah and when, IE, when there's a precipice, you know, so. an extinction event or a global um, catastrophe or war, you know, Camus talked about it in that speech I keep referencing, you know, he saw the greatest of a generation lost, but they were greater than he in his mind because they died for an ultimate ideal. Did they still die for nothing? Probably, but they died for an ideal that was the betterment of their fellow man. Now, that was just a nation. You know, but it brought out the best in people just as much as it brought out the worst in people, because I really think we're only capable of looking into that precipice when we're forced to, you know, it is inherently human to avoid the hard things. And it's inherently human to deny our genetic disposition to live. And sometimes when the moral idea crashes against that 
genetic disposition to survive, I think you get some of the best and worst in human history, you know, and, and how do we bring people under that umbrella to understand that like, this is, this is, how do we get people to feel that way when they're not suffering, when they're not looking at, when they're not looking at defeat in the eye, you know, how do we get people to wake up feeling that way? Not just when they have a gun to their head. I don't know. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to kill this quote because I don't remember how I, I don't remember the exact way it goes, but in the day the earth stood still with Keanu Reeves, the newer one, I love that one. The, when he, when he is, when he's released that um, giant robot, you know, the nanotechnology robot that's going to destroy and eat all of human, everything. Um, the old great goose scenario. The, yeah. He, he run, he, you know, he finds himself in the woods with the, where this mathematician is trying to find out this, trying to figure out an equation. And the mathematician is sitting on a couch and he's writing this, he's got the equation on the board and he's not, he's not present initially. But when Keanu Reeves walks into the house, he sees that equation and he starts writing it. And the mathematician comes out as he's writing it and starts writing new equations, trying like, you know, kind of, I don't, again, I'm not a mathematician, but as he's writing it, Keanu Reeves, the alien is correcting each of that math of the variations he's adding to that math mathematical equation to give clarity about this, this problem that humans are, you know, trying to figure out. And then he, you know, they have a little bit of a conversation. Ultimately, he says that it is, he tries to convince him not to destroy humanity. And he says, as, as Keanu Reeves is saying, your, your, your race is just a vile race. You guys are so violent and you you kill each other, you know, so on and so forth. He says, it's only at the precipice of extinction that human beings make civilizations, make these changes. We are at that precipice right now. And, and he convinces Keanu Reeves, the alien, to not destroy civilization. I, I agree. I think that, I think you're right. I think that it is at the precipice that we decide, but that's, we can't wait that. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a big gamble that we're making as a civilization. I think we need to figure something out before that happens. If history teaches anything, we'll exhaust every other possibility till we do the right thing. And I wonder if, you know, I wonder if, the ultimate striving towards this utopia is, you know, us becoming part of not just a global community, but a universal community. And, and I have high aspirations for the human race going into outer space, that finding new ways to travel to new worlds and maybe possibly someday discovering other life, maybe even intelligent life. And I, I think alone, intelligent life out there. Oh, I totally agree. I just mean, like, it's just a matter of, you know, how far out in the algorithm of, of human versus technology versus science do we get there before we can discover it and understand it. And, and I, I aspire to live to see that day, although I doubt I will. Um, I want to I wanna see a human race that collectively from constant, from, 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 from country to country, from place to place from time zone to time zone to North pole to South pole, understand that it isn't the Germans versus the Americans. It isn't the Africans versus the Icelandic. It isn't, you know, we, we fight. There are some philosophers that say the only thing that divides people is language. That if we all spoke the same language, that we would create a universal society with which to share a collective history from. And if we start sharing a collective history, we start creating a collective ideal. And I That's think we really only accomplish that by 
the entire world focusing on the idea of the exploration of space, that we have to realize that we are not a global community, but an interstellar community, that there is more out there than just our experience. One of my favorite speeches of all time is Carl Sagan's pale blue dot speech, the aggregate of our pain and suffering and a pale blue dot. And I, I think about that all the time. And this comes back to the setup. The thing we talked about in the first podcast is that size is what defeats us. We just have to realize that the world is so much bigger. When I say world, I mean the universe, the galaxy, and that, that there are so many broader ideas and perspectives to attack beyond our own selfish human needs. And if we turned our eyes to the sky and aspire to those ideals, we might just become a little bit more sympathetic towards one another. You are quite poetic, my friend. You're very poetic. Um, I like that. I like that. You know, not that I want to get on the topic of extraterrestrials, at least not in this podcast. I'll, I'll actually right. ask a question, um, see what the audience says. If anybody wants to hear about aliens, I'll ask that question. You guys can answer it within the questions um, underneath the show notes. But um, the idea of us unifying as a civiliz global civilization, you know, who was it that said, that, um, oh, man, uh, Ronald Reagan, I believe. And one of his speeches to college students, he said, you know, it would be, it would be, I, I can't, I don't want to, I don't want to misquote and chop it up so bad that it's, uh, you know, unintelligible, but essentially if we were faced by an alien threat that, you know, was overwhelming, then the human race would have no choice but to unify. And, you know, is it not, are we not now facing, you know, this threat, um, shit, essentially pushing for the idea of unit of global unification. And I think he was right. I think that Ronald Reagan was right. I mean, he's no man is perfect, but at least in that moment, I think he was correct that if we are facing a threat, a threat to humanity as a whole, but it's, it's one that we are creating for ourselves. And that is essentially we're destroying ourselves slowly. We're chipping away at, at our humanity, at the core of our humanity, what it means to be human. The values of just being human are being, we have the ability to do so much more than all other organisms on this planet. And yet we are not using half a quarter fraction of what our capabilities are. We're wasting it on these, you know, these very primitive passions that kind of don't make sense. No, I mean, I, I don't want to say that anybody is stupid, but it isn't intelligent for us to have a war. It's not intelligent for us to not feed the poor. To not to or to not house and clothe the poor and feed the hungry and to not be a civilization that just that just provides these types of uh, these types of things to our to ourselves. This is us. Like, what's what's happening? I don't I don't I don't quite understand. I don't quite understand. But I do know that it is it is the systems that are keeping people within this mindset that this is just the way things are. That this is actually the greatest good. The greatest good is for you to strive to strive to constantly suffer you know you if you're not if at the end of the day you're not bleeding out of the hands and and begging for a cheeseburger at mcdonald's then you ain't an american that's insane to me that's kind of that's kind of it's kind of weird and insane to me we are wow. perpetuating insanity i like this there's this quote from the rome diaries that uh it was a hundred thompson quote now i'm sure it's probably lifted from somebody much older and much uh, it's probably a philosophical quote and i'm just using it from him but you know, human beings are the only creature on the planet that claims a God and the only living thing that behaves like it hasn't got one. You know, it, it, it's amazing what wow. we can justify. Wow. I love that. Yeah, freaking. I love that, man. That's that's actually really awesome. 
But I mean, like, it's unfortunate. I, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I am split in my perspective on things in that I am a hopeless romantic, but I am a realist. I'm a pragmatic. And the pragmatist and the romantic in me battle constantly to these feverish, poetic ideas of the world. But I've lived long enough and seen enough and read enough history to know how it really works. And you still need people who aspire to these lofty aspirations and these ideas. I'd like to be one of them. But I think the way in which you achieve them have to be founded in pragmatism. You know, uh, I do think that it all comes back to, have you ever heard of Plato's Allegory of the Caves? I'm sure you probably have. Problem is, is that it's been so long that I do not right. remember. Uh, I'm sure those that have read, uh, you know, that took Philosophy 101 in college, um, you know, Plato's Allegory of the Caves goes something to the effect of um, there are a group of people who are born and raised in a cave. They live their entire life in a cave and they're chained to the wall and behind them is a fire. And everything that comes in front of the fire casts a shadow on the wall. And given their entire life and existence, these people that have grown up in that cave think that all those shadows are real things. They think they're witty and smart. They give names to these shadows. They call them trees and birds and dogs and humans. And amongst themselves, they are thought to be wise and intelligent and capable. And then one day, by happenstance, one of those members frees himself from that cave and stumbles out into the real world. The sun blinds him. The colors are bright and vibrant. The water tastes clear and clean. And this person goes back to the cave to try to enlighten these other people locked within it. And they aspire against him and kill him because oh, they are scared by what he has to say. And that was always Plato's allegory for philosophy, that the philosophers are the ones who go out into the light of the right. sun and try to bring knowledge back to people, not that they're wiser or more capable just that they have seen a different perspective than those they bring that knowledge back to. And through the Socratic method, try to enhance the lives of those they bring that wisdom to. And, you know, how do you take that same premise, which is just as old as people themselves, and try to bring that into a modern context? Because you could even wax intellectual now that we have more available knowledge and wisdom and you know, each one of us, at least in the modern world, have a device in our pockets that have access to the collective sum of human knowledge as we know it. But yet, we are probably the most ignorant generation in 100 years. Oh, you know, that that's, oh my goodness, I just saw a talk the other day that's that said that every almost, because it was, the talk was about literacy. Um, about how they're a lot of intellectuals are not the best writers. You know, some of them are extremely intelligent, but they don't have very good writing. And every generation for hundreds of years has said that this generation is the most illiterate generation of its of its time. We are, you know, it's it's like that's that's a constant um, <clears throat> theme. But the problem is that I th there was a time whenever education was had a completely different standard, especially in the USA, because uh, the founders of this country. Uh, were the ones who were the intellectuals, whereas most of the, the, the people were essentially peasants. And they weren't even, they weren't reading books. They weren't writing books unless they were maybe writing memoirs and, you know, um, things like that because they were talking about their life and how it sucked. But they were not doing things that were intellectual. Now, today, we have, we have, you said last episode about how we have at our fingertips 
the you know the library of alexandria and yet we are still so uneducated and uninformed it's it's weird i uh, the thing that i constantly struggle wrapping my head around and i understand why but it's, i still personally struggle with it and in this in this country and it seems like the the larger advanced world this anti-intellectualism movement that we seem to have that like smart yeah, people or something well, I, I read a really interesting article or watched an interesting philosophy video. I can't remember where, but like, if you look at the history of humankind, especially as Americans, especially, you know, uh, to your point, the founders of this country were intellectual giants compared to the people that they were attempting to democratize, right? And for the longest time, we aspired to those lofty intellectual ideals because we were a new country and it was beneficial to do so. And then somewhere around the Jacksonian time, the politics of the day and you know certain people smarter than me argue that at the time societally uh, we really didn't need the intellectuals they were untrusted because the person needed a much more rugged set of ideas you didn't have to be you didn't have to understand metallurgy you had to know how to cut down a tree you know how to, you had to know how to build a log cabin you know how to kill and feed a family or kill an animal feed your family like these were survivalist ideals and then as we, you know, got into the industrial revolution, you know, it took us dozens of years to get past this anti-intellectual Jacksonian style of ideals come the modern um, industrial revolution. Now we have to start relying on intellectuals again, because it's impossible. Things have become so advanced and so complicated. It's impossible for one person to have an understanding of all things. So we need the doctors that understand biology. We need the the scientists that understand metallurgy and chemical compounds. And we have to start trusting people because we no longer have the time, cognitive capacity or, or financial ability to know all things. So, you know, just like those people we trust give us great things, those people we trust can also use that intelligence to do awful things. And in the modern syntax, it feels like a hundred million intellectuals can do a hundred million wonderful things. But if one of them does a bad thing, then we as a society use that as an excuse to browbeat all the other intellectuals who have done wonderful things. And that's what I don't understand. You know, it's okay to have cognitive dissonance. I love it. I live for it. But this complete distrust of all people, like it's almost become a crime now to be smarter than other people. The moment that you appear that way, yeah, it's, people it's instantly bad. distrust you. Like one, how dare you be fucking smarter than me? And it's definitely an American thing that we all want to be the smartest yeah. person in the room. But I don't, you know, I, I had a converse, I, I've, I have too many, I, I don't so much anymore because um, it's tiring and it's, it's not good for my mental health, but I used to kind of engage people that had extreme ideas, very extreme mm -hmm. ideas, very, very, very far, far extreme ideas. <laughs> so that I could understand where they're coming from and try to have a conversation. I just want to know what's going on. I want to know why. And I, I got, I can't even tell you. Um, the backlash was scary, to be honest. I got, I got kind of scared because the responses were somewhat violent. Uh, the threat of violence, the threat of murder, um, because, because my ideas, I, I try to present them in a clear way. And, you know, sometimes I challenge people. I try to joke, you know, try to make it lighter. But th there, there was some extreme um, resistance to what I had to say about those, those ideas. And, and it wasn't like I was saying, this person is dumb or this person's stupid but, but that's how they interpret say, it sometimes well you know when you challenge so if you challenge me if you say marquise that didn't make sense 
I'll think, okay, what did I say? Maybe I can find a better way to say this, or maybe I need to make more sense. How do I make more sense? Or Marquise, I, I think that you need to study that, that issue a little bit more before you say what you just said. You know what? I'm going to say, oh, that's, I got to go figure this out now. I can't come here looking like an idiot and not know. I want to know now. I want to figure this out. I want to know how I can communicate better. That's how you would normally respond to challenges. If You would if think so. Well, that's I how you and I certainly would. That's how I feel. But But some people that I would challenge um, their ideas. And I would say, look, you know, I don't think you, I don't think that you fully understand that idea. I think maybe you need to, and I would literally say, maybe you need to really look into that a little bit more because it, that's not what that means. Um, it would be, what if I burn down your house or there, it was pretty violent. It was pretty violent. So okay. I, I stopped doing that, but, but you know, it is, we are essentially, and I'm not, I mean, George, we are, we are armchair philosophers, right? We're just, right. we're just kind of regular guys. We have, other endeavors that we go through, we 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 just love the the, the thought provoking ideas of philosophers and intellectuals in our, of our time. But at the same time, we you know we under we we spend a lot of time reading and thinking about these things. I mean, I guarantee that, like me, you don't spend a moment where you don't contemplate about something, right? Any anything like well, any just at any given moment, you're think you're probably just thinking mm -hmm. about about but understanding something. I, I completely agree with you and I'll provide my perspective onto that insight. And this is a lesson I've had to learn the hard way as a man who spent 30 years debating with people. Um, I used to disagree with people violently, you know, call them idiots or disagree in a way that was very um, um, aggressive. And uh, I, I am, I am not uh, a placid individual. I am a, I am a, 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 I like conflict. I thrive off conflict. Now for me, conflict doesn't have to be the nature of screaming and yelling. I just like the idea of, right. of discourse and to have discourse is to have conflict and to have conflict is to have resolution and to have resolution is to have new ideas. And the lesson, the hardest lesson I've ever learned Marquise, and this does not paint me. I'm not trying to paint myself as better or smarter than anyone, but to your earlier point, I've maybe by being single my whole life and not having kids and being on my own and traveling, I've had to keep my own self as company my whole life. And I spent my nose buried in books, maybe using intellectualism as a coping mechanism for things I didn't understand or didn't want to face. And I've had that, that constant reflection, that constant reading has allowed me to have insights into myself, which is positive. It's allowed me to have insights into other people too. And the most dangerous thing you can do to another person is have an insight into their life that they haven't had themselves. It's how you lose every argument you'll ever have with a person, every discourse you'll ever have with another person. To challenge a person to think, to read, to better themselves, you have to do it in a way that is so tactful they don't even realize you're disagreeing with them because to disagree with them is to lose the intent of the conversation, which is to, hey, we're just two people disagreeing about something, both trying to make ourselves better through the nature of this discourse. I'm not calling They're, you stupid. I don't think I'm yeah. better than you. But if you have an insight into a person that they haven't had themselves, that can be painful, scary, frustrating to them. And sometimes it can cause them to fly into a rage where you lose them entirely. You know, it's even it's happened to me. The, the greatest teachers of that principle in my life have been women. Um, and uh, let me, let me clarify. So what my mother, for example, you know, my mom, she's, she's my mother. She, 
she gave birth to me. She's older than me. She has more experience in life than me. She understands things that I haven't still, you know, kind of experienced yet. So th- there is, you know, but as, right. as my direction in life has been towards the, in- the thoughtful, the intellectual. Hers is just to live life, you know, to, she likes to connect too. She's a connector. She is big on building connections. But I understand things sometimes that, you know, she comes to me for and you know, I'm like, mom, you know, mom, this is this way. This is this. This is what that means. You know, you know, whatever, giving her advice. And that that has met, been met with some aggression by my mother. You know, well, who do you think you're talking to? This is, I'm your mom. Because, you know, it's it's my mom. She she has she's lived her life much longer than I've lived mine. And so in her mind, who am I to give her advice about anything in life? And I, I respect that. I respect that her that she feels, you know, as an elder in life, that she she needs to be respected properly. And, and it's right. not that I disrespect her. It's no. that I'm not respecting her pro- the way that she needs to be respected. So she feels in her mind, respect, right? In her mind. Um, so, so like it, it, I learned that from women. Like women have taught me that you can't just you can say, "Hey, you know, we went through this thing, and um, what, what what is it? What is it? There's a quote from a, a wise man once told me. It says." When you're arguing with a woman, you say, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. It, it's, right. <laughs> it's, you, you, it's not just women, though. It's every, but women have taught me that, but it's not just women. In life, people have taught me. I've learned that you, you have to let them come to that conclusion themselves right. and spend more time with I statements than you statements. I think, I feel, it's, if it feels like to me versus you are doing, it, this means that you are, that thought is not right because that means that you feel you may understand human behavior and human human feelings a little bit more than other people, but you are not them. And just like you said, to tell someone something that they're not ready to hear or that they haven't, you know, they haven't figured out themselves. It's like you're threatening. It's, it's a threat to their life. It's a threat it's to their existential existence. It, it, psych, yeah. Yeah. Psychologically, psychologically. You know, and you know, what did Winston Churchill say? Tact is the ability to tell somebody to go to hell in such a way that they look forward to the journey. You know, I think wow, the most that's great. That's great. <laughs> that's the most wild among us can disagree with people in a way that doesn't feel confrontational. And that's a learned trait. You know, um, I am a firm believer, and I don't live up to this ideal even half the time. But imagine a world where everybody could say what was on their mind all the time, free of persecution from other people. How much better that would just in itself would make it's impossible. But right. would it be great if just you said all the things that were on your mind all the time to people and you can be well, completely honest with everybody that you love because only enemies tell the truth. Friends and lovers lie endlessly because we're caught in the web of regard. And reminds me of the 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 um the watchman when the, there's a joker in there too. He goes to his before he's killed, he goes to his greatest enemy. And he starts spilling his guts out to him, crying snot and everything like that. And he said, what, what does it mean of me that you're my best friend? 